Hello and welcome back to Ranking 76, where we are ranking the most notorious and infamous Western outlaws in American history. I am Eric. And I'm Matt. And we are approaching our first anniversary. We're going to cover the Alamo siege actually took place from February 23rd to March 6, 1836. So we're going to cover the three most well-known figures. And today we're starting with probably the biggest name, Davy Crockett who don't you dare call him Davy because he never signed his name as Davy. He is Mr. David Crockett to you, sir. Really? But everyone calls him Davy. It does because I need you to do a Google. Davy Crockett theme. Oh, no. If you thought Daniel Boone was catchy. There's another one? There's another This has a question. It's the the same. Uh, we'll, We'll get into it. Davy Crockett song. Oh, God. I feel like, oh, weird. It said I already listened to it. Oh, you've heard it. It hasn't left my my brain in five months. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. Green estate in the land of the free. Raised in the woods so he knew every tree. Not at all like Daniel Boone's theme. Not at all. Fought single handed through the engine war till the creeks was wet and peace was in store. And while he was handling this risky chore, made himself a legend forevermore. Not really. Why don't, why don't you search uh, the act? Why don't you search Fess Parker? Fess Parker? F-E-S-S Parker. Yeah, American actor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there he is. Yeah, what's his IMDb page? Oh, Daniel Boone. He was Daniel, <laughs> Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone. Both wearing a coonskin hat. Both the same character. He basically got paid twice for the same role. One was a miniseries, and the other was actually the Daniel Boone That's series. That's hilarious. So he was Daniel Boone and Danny Crockett. He was. All wrapped up in one man. One coonskin-covered man. He played him in uh, multiple things. He played Davy Crockett in multiple things. Interesting. Yeah, so... There was your 1955. That song has not left my my brain in five months, so good luck to you with it. I had to spread it out, and you're all welcome for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll be honest. Davy is the gift that keeps on giving, so I got real quote happy in this episode because he is hilarious. So with that, enough banter. Let's go right into his life. David Crockett was born on August 17, 1768, near the Nalachucky River in Tennessee. He was born in the short-lived state of Franklin uh, and is one of eight children. His father is an Irish immigrant and veteran of the Revolutionary War. Less is known about his mother, but uh, it is believed that she was born near Baltimore. Davy comes from humble beginnings. His father, not very good with money, is forced to sell the family farm multiple times. He invests in a mill that gets destroyed by a flood, and the family is forced to accept help from its neighbors. David would write of his father, His hardships were deepened by misadventure that brought debts and creditors rather than fortune. Or in other words, David fathers would make 
big plays to get out of debt all at once. And when that play failed, they would be in just as much debt, if not more, than before. David's going to have a really colorful life. And he wrote an autobiography that is just full of witticisms and little sayings. If you've ever heard of the stereotypical like farmer leaning against a post saying these clever things, it may not come from Crockett, but I think it, this may have been where it originated, uh, or at least the most famous comparison we have. So we have a little bit more on his childhood than others we will cover. We can also discuss at the end how accurate his autobiography is. Story number one. David is out hunting with his uncle when he's around seven years old. His uncle mistook a man wearing a red flannel shirt and thought it looked suspiciously like a deer. David is a witness as his uncle shoots the man and as they take him to a man named Samuel Humbert, someone who isn't a doctor, but does have, quote, Wood's wisdom and frontier skills, something that was very comforting, I'm sure, to the man with a new hole in his body. His, some of his Wood's wisdom, Samuel Humbert believed, is that he didn't believe fires were fires, but they were cleansing fires. They had some form of healing ability. He also liked to brag that in the 16 years he had lived at his home, his fire had not been put out once. If anything, I think he was just a pyromaniac and just liked his fire a whole lot and just stared in it for hours. Humbert determined that there was no damage done to any of the vital organs, but to help set, but infection could actually set in to the man that was shot by Davy's uncle. Humbert asked David's uncle to pull the ramrod from his barrel, wrap it around in silk and then in silk handkerchief. Then David watches as John inserts the ramrod into the gunshot wound, pushes it through all the way to the exit wound. <laughs> he then takes both ends of the handkerchief that remained in the wound, pulls it back and forth as if it was floss. This is supposedly to help cleanse the debris from the wound and to prevent infection. Somehow, the man lived. God. Super painful, though. I can't imagine how painful that would be. He was already in pain from the gunshot, and then they just... Here, let me clean it out. I just... Mm. Probably soak the uh, bandana in alcohol or what? I think it was just all the way through. I I have no idea. All I know is James Garfield uh, definitely understands. A couple years later, David is nine years old and he's playing in the river near with four other friends. His friends leave him on the bank and paddle away in a canoe. The current is strong enough to take control away from them. In a classic movie fashion, a waterfall is just over the horizon. David would write in his autobiography, it weren't this, though that scared me, for I was so infernal mad that they had left me on the shore that I had se rather seen them go over the falls than as in the other way. A bystander uh, steps in from the other side, and David describes. He comes in like a cane break of fire. As he ran, he threw off his coat and then his jacket and then his shirt. And as I know, when I got to the water, he had nothing but his breeches. But seeing him in such a hurry, tearing off his clothes as he went, I had no doubt that he was the devil or something else were in him. 
The boys are rescued by the man and just pulled to safety, and David is sulking, still sulking in his anger and being left described. But as he hung on to the canoe till he got stopped and then drawed out of anger, then they got out. I found the boys were more scared than I had been, and the only thing that comforted me was the belief that the punishment was on them for leaving me on shore. That's what you guys get. Next time, include me. Next Near time, death. I mean, that's hilarious that he was like, I'd rather seen him go over. I was so mad they didn't include me. Sounds like a nine-year-old. I know. Classic nine-year-old boy. Shit, I should have went over. <laughs> You're not going to play with me? Go die. In order to make money for the family, Davy would serve out his children, David included. David may have been nervous about going out with a complete stranger after what happened to his sister, Catherine. When she is served out, she later becomes impregnated by the man she was working for. When his wife kicks her out, David's father will have nothing to do with his now pregnant, out-of-wedlock daughter. Catherine is forced to take shelter with a preacher, gives birth, but but unfortunately the child dies shortly after. The father of the child was still sending gifts to to Catherine, but David's family would have nothing else to do with her. None of them? Doesn't sound like it. Tell me what part of that was her fault. How old was she? Uh, I didn't catch that. I just know Davy was young, and it was seemed like it was fairly typical for families who didn't have a lot of money to basically labor off their children for a time. And in fact, we're about to get into Davy is about to do the same things a couple times. So it wasn't the it wasn't uncommon, but I mean, to abandon your daughter because she got pregnant by a man that you were the one who like loaned her out. Yeah, you put her in that situation, and now you're kicking her out. Nice. David's father, now running a tavern, serves his 12-year-old son to quote an old Dutchman by the name of John Seiler, who was moved from Knox County to Brock Bridge in the state of Virginia. In passing, he made a stop at my father's house. He had a large stockpile of cattle that he was carrying with him, and I suppose made the proposition to my father to hire someone to assist him. Young as I was, and as little as I knew about traveling or being away from home, he hired me to go with the old Dutchman, to go about 400 miles, on foot, with a perfect stranger that I had never seen until that evening before. At the end of the 400-mile trip, Siler gave David, are you ready for this, $5. Jeez, 400 miles for 5 bucks? Maybe even $6. Does that change your thoughts? Yeah. That's a little better. Getting getting there. David was pleased. He went uh, when David went home. Siler asked him to stay. David's David was afraid that his father would be mad if David didn't stay and hung around for another five or six weeks. <laughs> there will be a pattern. They pass the family that David recognizes as a patron of his father's tavern, and they offer to take Davy back home with them. The morning Davy is willing to leave after five or six weeks that he was basically volunteered to be there, he has to walk seven miles in knee-high snow. And if you listen very carefully, you just heard your grandfather say, both ways. I was just going to say, was it uphill both ways, too? (laughs) With wind at his face. David meets his family until they start to go home. Uh, But because of the snow, they make little progress. 
An annoyed David then gets out and goes out ahead of them and returns home for the 400 miles. By himself. Essentially, he's 12 years old. There you go, kid. Could you get to the supermarket at 12 years old? I can barely get to the supermarket now. Busey's, right? Is that what that convenience store is, Texan? Texans? No, is that no, Bucky's. Bu- Bu- Bucky's. Bu- Busey's? <laughs> I probably shouldn't mess with Texas because they are most of our downloads, so I probably shouldn't be angering them, but... <laughs> Busey's. Anyway, Texas, if you're still listening, we love you. We really do. David attempts to go to school, but is only enrolled for four days. David gets into a fight and is afraid that the schoolmaster would be angry, so he skips the next day. And then the next day. And then, then the next day. He might just be that mad. When his father hears that David has been literally skipping classes... He literally chases David with a whipping rod, and David only avoids it by hiding into the brushes while his father runs past him looking for him. Afraid to go home, David goes to a nearby neighbor named Jesse Creek, and he sees his brother sitting with the family. Creek and David's brother were about to head out to Virginia. David is scared and decides that he is going to leave with them also. They made it to Virginia with no, de- with no issues, but David is still concerned that his father may be angry. Quote, holding his anger like a turtle does a fisherman's toe. I personally think his dad is still running with the whipping rod. He never actually stopped. He's still looking for David. David has a chat with a man that he described as a, quote, a jolly good fellow. He jumps and rides with him, and then he finds work with a man named Adam Myers. Then he finds work for a John Gray. Then he finds work for an Elijah Griffith. And after 18 months of working for Griffith, David then finds himself unemployed because Griffith escapes because of debt collectors. Now thinking it's a good time to go home, David now starts to take a job to raise money for a ride back. He then raises money and wants to go home right that moment because now it's super important. He decides to leave during a storm. A storm that is so powerful, the ferry boat operator wouldn't set out during. David then finds a canoe and starts to paddle across the stormy water himself. He was determined to get home, huh? Yeah, just now. Just this moment. Never mind the 18 months that he was... Nope, I'm going home. I don't care. I'm going home. It's right now. I'd have to do this right now. When I got fairly out on the river, I would have given the world if it had belonged to me to be back on shore, but where I was now, there was no time to lose, for I was so determined to do the best I could that the devil take the hindsight. After much struggle, David is able to return the canoe into a swift waters and then paddled through upstream for about two miles until the current's dream carried him across. Quote, when I struck land, my canoe was about half full of water and I was wet as a drowned rat, but I was so rejoiced that I scarcely felt cold though my clothes were frozen on me. David had to hike three miles to find a cabin and dry off as his, and has liquor for the first time. Quote, I had a little of the critter, the warmer of the cold and the cooler of the hot. Finally, after two and a half years away, David returns. But he doesn't just want to go to his family, who probably assumes he's dead. He plays it cool. 
He casually walks up to his family's tavern and asks if there's any rooms available and if he could rent one, please. He then sits in the gathering room until his family calls for dinner. After sitting down for his ta- at the table, his sister, who had been eyeing him across the room very confused, finally recognizes Deva, runs over and says, here is my lost brother. Family thought he was lost. Now celebrate. <laughs> Don't skip school, kids. <laughs> right? Your parents will think you're gone forever. Do you think his dad was still running around in the circle? Of <laughs> Just like, Dad, you can come inside now. Oh, thank God. Oh, we got him. You are in for the worst beating. And then he just falls over, passed out from exhaustion. David's home for about two years when his father humbly goes up and asks him to pay off a debt that his father had owed. And he's just not able to pay it back. The total debt is for $36. Giving David the option to say no Maybe after a couple years away, his father thinks forcing his children to working for complete strangers might not be the best parenting tactic. If David agrees, all the income from David's earnings would be his thereafter. David agrees to this and then works off the debt in six months. Wow. After the six-month term limited up, David works for another six months term. When David returns home, David tells his father that the debt has been paid off, but also shows his father a note for, uh, from his other employment. David's father starts sobbing, believing that the note was another collection payment. David then tells his father that it was a gift and not a payment, and his father is said to be so overwhelmed that he openly sobs in front of his son. So not only did he pay off his debt, he also gave him all the money that he collected for the next six months? Yeah. Just gave him just a gift. Wow. That apparently brought his father to tears. Nice guy. Which is very, very wholesome. Now it's time to talk about the ladies. Amy Summer is 19-year-old daughter of a man David worked for. Speaking of a true awkward teenager, David wrote, I was afraid to begin to start talking to her. Quote, for when I think of saying anything to her, my heart would begin to flutter like a duck on a puddle. And if I tried to updo it and speak, it would put right smack in my throat and choke me like a cold potato. After removing the potato from his throat, Davy works up the courage to go talk to her and to find out that she was actually already engaged to marry her first cousin. It's a real cold potato to swallow. The last hoof. <laughs> <laughs> I know the option. There, like, there's, there's no tender, but <laughs> look outside the family. Quote, this news was worse for me than war, pestilence, or famine, but I still know that I could not help myself. I saw quick enough that my cake was dough. Disappointed, but still a male teenager, David moves on to the next mar- to the next woman named Margaret Elder. David described her as a tall, buxom lass with cherry-bitten cheeks and luscious lips, mischievous eyes, and hands doubtably accustomed to handling the spinning wheel or a rifle trigger, if you know what I mean. I'm sure he was very impressed by her spinning wheel abilities. I just think it's funny that he said it was worse than war, famine, pestilence, and then it immediately moved on to someone else. <laughs> Man, this is terrible. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's like, you know, you see in the movie or like you know, like TV shows or whatever where like they break up and then he's like sitting at the bar and then a girl walks by. Well, okay, that's good. All right. Uh- <laughs> Become my next mistake. Right. He is 
easily the most relatable figure we've covered. Like every, like he speaks to me. The I don't want to be here, or like I will be here on my terms. But when I want to return home, I'm returning now, right this freaking moment. Nothing will stop me. I'm heartbroken. Hello, lady. Margaret, however, is not engaged to her first cousin and agrees to date David. The two become serious, and there's even talk of marriage. Trying to impress her, David takes off to win a shooting contest that was heading up to officially propose to his, quote, little queen, but runs, to his, but runs into Margaret's sister instead. Confusingly, her sister bursts into tears and tells David that Margaret actually has zero intention of marrying him and was actually engaged to be married to someone the next day. What? David wrote, this was as sudden to me as a clap of thunder on a bright, sunshiny day. But it's not as bad as war pestilence or famine. Just thunderclap this time. He's <laughs> ready for this. Heartbroken, but not heartbroken enough. Uh, David then rejects a nice Dutch girl who I'm sure is just thrilled that he wrote about her, quote, as ugly as a stone fence. And she was so homely that it was almost gives me pain to look at her in the eyes. Oh, Davy, come on. <laughs> I can't even look That's at you. So You're so mean. ugly. That's so mean. God. Come on, man. Davey, he was in his thirties. He was, he was a grown man when he wrote that down. <laughs> you knew exactly what you were writing. Yeah. Looking back. Oof. I had nightmares about it for weeks. God. She should apologize to me for <laughs> looking at her. I'm sure she was the nicest possible person. David, you monster. While firmly rejected, the Dutch girl, who I don't believe Davy gives a name, thank God, gives uh, takes the high road and actually invites David to a reaping where he run where she believes she found someone that's a perfect fit for him. The woman is known as Polly Finley. The couple wed on August 16th, 1806. Well, would you look at that? One day before David's birthday, 20th birthday, uh, the couple will have three children together. That's nice. Okay, so now, now I'm even more like, come on, because not only he writes his autobiography, dude, when I tell you this chick was ugly, she was <laughs> ugly. Also, she introduced me to my wife. Who I'm very happy with. Like he can't even he he, he could have just left it out and said, you know, she just wasn't my type. But no, he had to go like so far below the belt that he's talking about how ugly she is. I mean, and then you know, I told her that, and she said, "Well, I got someone for you. Here I am." Oh, do you? God dang! And I was on the other end where I was like, where you said, "Thank God he didn't name her." He's not even nice enough to give her her name. He just calls her the Dutch girl. If somebody described me as, quote, ugly as a stone fence and it gave me pain to look at her, I don't think I'd want to be put in that either. Damn it, Davey. Damn it. David. It's missed. It's David. No. I'm not. I'm not Davey because no. he's, he's a jerk. Matthew. Maddie Jacks. It's David. The new family uh, moved to Lincoln County, Tennessee. Uh, they then claim a modest acreage. Even though much like Daniel Boone, David was not much of a farmer and actually enjoyed hunting. 
The family soon develop financial hardship and lose the acreage. They're forced to move, but are able to claim a 200-acre farm in Franklin County, and David confusingly names it Kentuck. A lot of parallels to Daniel Boone. A lot of moving. Going to be a lot of hunting. David is 27 in 1813 and enrolls into the Tennessee militia after hearing the Native after hearing Native American attacks. One such attack in a very brief history is the Fort Mims massacre, where 1,000 Red Stick natives killed 500 men, women, and children, and then mutilated the bodies. Very short version of that. Uh, David may have also been seeking revenge for Fort Mims because his grandfather was likely killed by Native Americans himself. Davy enlists in the War of 1812 and is listed to the forever promised 90-day home by Christmas war. He's placed in a scouting party because of his ability with a rifle. After finding out that the natives were crossing the river and preparing to attack, Crockett and the other scout race back. Initially, they are not believed because Crockett is not an officer. And my question is, why do you send a scout if you're not going to believe what the scout tells you? But I digress. Davy agreed because he now will hold a grudge on career military officers really throughout the rest of his life. David, under the siege of Brigadier General John Coffey, is ordered to attack a nearby Creek village that I'm going to butcher. I'm very sorry. I believe it's Tallahatchie. Should have looked that up. On the morning of November 3rd, the militia surround the village. An hour before the sunrise, the attack begins. The militia overruns the town. Crockett was among those who attack and wrote. A little bit of a, this gets a little bit gruesome. So if you want to skip this, probably just forward ahead two minutes because it does get a little graphic. Keep that in mind because I think he was very literal when he described this. Quote, we pursued them until we got near the house. Then we saw a squaw sitting in the door. She then placed her feet against the bow that she had in her hand. She then took an arrow and raised her feet, drew it with all her might and let it fly at us. And she killed a man. So in other words, she was sitting on the ground. She had the bow in her feet and then was able to fire it. And she ended up killing him. His death so enraged us that she was fired on and she had at least 20 balls thrown through blown through her. This was the first man I had ever saw killed by a bow and arrow. We now shot them like dogs. We then set the house on fire. We burned it up with near 46 warriors in it. During the destruction, David sees a, na a young native boy. I recollect seeing a boy who had shot down near the house. His arm and thigh were broken, and he was so near the burning house that the grease was stewing out of him. In this situation, he was still trying to crawl along, but not a murmur would escape him. Though he is only about 12 years old, so sullen was the Indian that when his dander was up, he had no sooner, he would had sooner die than make a noise or ask for quarters. After the aftermath, quote, many, many of the carcasses of the Indians were to, be, were to be seen. They looked very awful for the burning had not entirely consumed them, but giving them a terrible appearance, at least what remained of them. It was, somehow or other, found out that the house had a potato cellar under it, 
and the immediate extermination uh, examination was made for we had made we are all hungry as wolves we found the fine chance of potatoes in it the hunger compelled us to eat them but i had rather not if i could have helped it for the oil of the indians we had just burned up on the day before had run down on them and they looked like they had been stewed off with fat meat during the battle 186 creeks were killed and 84 were taken prisoners Five Americans were killed, 41 wounded. Andrew Jackson commended the men for their victory. Jackson continues to serve, possibly meeting Sam Houston at this point. Later returns home and reserves orders to head back out, but hires a replacement. The replacement sees no action. The Treaty of Ghent ends the War of 1812. Andrew Jackson is a war hero and starts his presence on the national stage. There's no joke for that. That's truly awful. Generally don't like getting that much gory detail, but once in a while it's it's awful. Truly awful. David returns home from the war a year or so after he returns. Polly becomes sick with either typhoid fever or something called milk sickness. Milk sickness is a disease contracted by drinking the milk of a cow that had been eating a snake root plant. Symptoms include abdominal pain, vomiting, extreme constipation, and fatigue. Polly would fall into a stupor, a small coma, and then later died. David wrote, I met with the hardest trail which had ever come to the lot of man, death. That cruel leveler of devastation entered my humble cottage and tore and tore from my children an affectionate good mother and for me a tender and loving wife. Crockett doesn't wait long, though, to find another wife. He is a single father of three young children, and according to biographer Michael Wallace, quote, has no time for a short courtship. David looks around, has a think, and remembers that someone that he knew in the war now has a widow. No. He pays that widow a visit, and Elizabeth, the widow is just as motivated to find a husband as David is to find a wife. David wrote, quote, I began to think that as we were both in the same situation, it might be that we could do as something for each other. The fact that Elizabeth was the inheritor of a 250-acre farm plus gold coins, quote, I soon began to pay my respects for her in real good earnest, but I was sly as a fox for when he was going to rob the hen roost. I then found her company wasn't all that disagreeable to her. She went meh when she met him. Only after a couple of months after Polly dies, David celebrates his marriage with a honeymoon by himself. He leaves his new bride for a hunting trip. The hunting trip doesn't go that well for a man is bitten by a snake and left behind. The horses escape, for which David forces David is forced to walk the next morning and the next day for what he estimated to be 50 miles. He then begins to feel a bit sick. I began to feel mighty sick, and I had a dreadful headache. My rifle was so heavy, and I felt so weak that I lay down by the side of the trace in the perfect wilderness to see if I couldn't get any better. Any better. David didn't realize 
that he had actually caught malaria. He is saved by two Choctaw men who take him to a woman named Jessica Jones. Probably that Jessica Jones. Though around him, those around him expected him to die soon. He passed out for almost a week and was delirious when he woke up for a period of two weeks. Jessica, trying to save his life, gives him an entire six-ounce bottle of medicine known as Batesman's Drops. You may also know Batesman's Drops as its more common name, opium. Mm -hmm. David survives to make his way back to his new wife's home, uh, now frustrated as she just as frustrated as she is happy to have him back. However, malaria will continue to flare up multiple times for the remainder of his life. Just to be clear, the guy, the girl she married, was that the guy that got the arrow? Uh, I don't believe it was the same guy, but it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> Man, that guy got very unlucky. You can almost see the cartoon bubble and like the light bulb go off over his head. Well, I'm a widower. I need to f- wait a minute. Remember that awful attack we just did? I can still benefit from that. David moves his family to Lawrence County and meets a man named Coonrod Pyle. And admittedly, there's no real reason for me to tell you about Coonrod Pyle other than his name is Coonrod Pyle. And when you run across the name Coonrod Pyle, you're going to say Coonrod Pyle because you really like how Coonrod Pyle sounds. <laughs> I was going to say, I give that a, like a six, that nickname. Oh, that's his name. That is no nickname. That is no Coonrod is a name. Oh, Coonrod. Coonrod Pyle. <laughs> he is a well known hunter in the area. Coonrod is about 20 years older than Baby. David spends his life in a cave, drank from a turtle shell, and is terribly afraid of thunderstorms. Coonrod was a successful gun manufacturer and overseer, and when he was not in his cave, he lived in a and a log cabin with no windows. Coonrod Pyle. Let's make that name happen again. Please. Coonrod Pyle. David purchases a land, 160 acres, of, from a former Choctaw land to modern-day Lawrence County, Tennessee. David and Rebecca give birth. It was her first child and Davy's fourth. They also name her Rebecca because you can't have different names in this time. David then becomes heavily involved in the community. His personal business ventures, uh, he purchases land and opens a gunpowder factory, a grist mill, and a whiskey distillery. The total cost of investment of $3,000, David was forced to take out a loan, quote, more than I was worth in the world. More than I was worth in the world. $3,000. Okay. Whiskey distillery, grist mill, gunpowder factory. It'll be fine. Now a veteran of the War of 1812, he is elected lieutenant colonel in his militia, named one of five commissioners whose responsibility was to lay borders and becomes one of 12 magistrates in the county. He is elected to the Tennessee legislature in 1821 for Lawrence and Hickman counties. He develops his cadence and his witticisms that he will become famous for, including using the phrase, be sure you are right, then go ahead. Something that the public is going to eat up in uh, Andrew Jackson's era of the common man that is now starting to expand. Outside of Jackson, he runs into future President James K. Polk, who congratulates Crockett in a conversation during a party, 
saying, quote, Well, Colonel, I suppose we shall have radical change in the judiciary at the next session of the legislature. David quickly ends the conversation by simply replying, Very likely, sir. For, quote, I was afraid someone would ask me what the judiciary was. During his first couple days in session, a nervous David spoke about in his plain country speak. A more seasoned politician named James Mitchell spoke after Crockett and made reference to, quote, the gentleman from the cane. An insult that would be similar to calling him a hillbilly, country bumpkin, redneck, you name it. Mitchell never mentions Crockett by name, but it is clear he's talking about Crockett. The members of the legislature give a slight laugh. However, an angry Crockett confronts Mitchell after the session. Mitchell claims he meant no disrespect. Crockett doesn't believe him, but still leaves for the day. But on his walk home, on the side of the road, Crockett finds a cambric ruffle. The cambric ruffle, kind of like the big puffy tie they would wear in the center that would be attached to their neck. That thing finds one of those on the side of the road. Oh, yeah. Similar to the one that Mitchell may also wear. Probably with a vengeful smile, Crockett picks up the fancy fluffy piece of cloth and pins it to his own shirt and strides into the chamber the next day. He waits for Mitchell to speak and then gives his speech. Crockett walks back and forth with the ruffle catching the eyes of the representatives and at first a small chuckle leaves into constant laughter. Apparently a hillbilly wearing a big fluffy piece of cloth was enough to make people laugh in those days. Mitchell is so embarrassed he runs out of the chamber. Crockett's revenge is complete. Future's looking pretty good for David. New farm, budding political career, business ventures. Takes a step back when a flood destroys all the land that Davy's business ventures are on. That $3,000 Davy described as more than he was worth in the world? Gone. Is now worthless. Yeah. Leading to lawsuits from investors and debt collectors to start coming from David. David casually drops that he has to start to sell some of his slaves in order to avoid complete financial ruin. But still in debt, he's able to continue his political career. David returns to the legislature and favors raising property taxes on the wealthy, wanting to put a ban on serving out laborers, just as he had been as a child, publicly comes out against slavery while ironically owning slaves himself. And he was a proponent of squatters' rights. Squatters' rights refers to the laws that allow a squatter to use or inhibit another person's property in the event that a lawful owner does not evict or take action against the squatter. Typically, squatters' rights laws only apply if the individual has been illegitimately occupying the space for a specific amount of time. This puts him in a direct clash with future president James K. Polk, who is very much anti-raising taxes on the rich and very pro- uh, removing squatters from land. Outside of Polk, Crockett has a dispute with Andrew Jackson as well. Jackson is becoming the political powerhouse in Tennessee. Jackson, to give you a sense of his power, is elected senator to simply stop a political foe from being reelected. Jackson simply resigns as soon as he elected. Because representatives, state representatives, sent U.S. senators to the Senate. That's how they were elected. Crockett was an ally of Williams and voted for Williams to keep his seat and wrote to the Jackson situation, quote, I have thought 
of Colonel Whip, Colonel Williams had honestly discharged his duty, and even the mighty name of Jackson couldn't make me vote against him, nor would ever, nor never did, acknowledge that I was voting wrong. And I'm more certain now more than ever, I told people that it was the best vote I ever gave and that I support of public interest. I cleared my conscience of giving it instead of gratifying the private ambition of a man. Jackson, not the most forgiving president we've ever had, is going to hold on to that for a bit. Polk then wants to fund a state university. Crockett opposes this because he believes that college is for aristocrats and that the only education needed was real-world living. Crockett grows tired of the state politics and wants to run for, a House of for the House of Representatives in 1825 and narrowly loses to Adam Alexander by 267 votes. So for the time being, he is out of politics. While out of politics, he still needs to put food on the table. With his ben business ventures literally flooded, uh, like Daniel Boone, Crockett thinks hunting seems to be his best option. He moves his family to Carroll County and, does, and goes on numerous hunting trips. He then faces, quote, the biggest bear in America that his dog is able to chase up a tree. David then shoots one round into the bear, and it takes no effect. The second round, the bear leaves the tree and then starts chasing his dog. Finally, the third shot is able to take down the bear. Why are so many people chasing bears? I was going to say, who had the bigger bear, Boone or him? Uh, we also had Hickok. Oh, yeah. You know. So many bears. Stop killing bears. Leave them alone. <laughs> they're animals, too. Literally, they're, they are actually animals. While on the several days hunt, that could get rather chilly, going between day and night, and then rain, the occasional rain, it would make it difficult to start a fire. David would continue searching for another bear, another bear, and in a hand-to-hand -hand fight, David, quote, made a lunge for my long knife, and he fortunately struck him through the heart. So David stabs a bear in the heart. David sets up camp to warm himself, dry his clothes, and skin the animal. He tries to build a fire, but there's nothing dry around him to spark a flame. Crockett is 39 years old and has lived outside long enough to know that if he doesn't keep moving, his numb body will suddenly give up. So he comes up with a plan. So I got up and I hollered a while and then I would jump up and down with all my might and throw myself into all sorts of motions. But all this wouldn't do for my blood was now getting cold and the chills are all over me. I'm going to do a little bit of a flip on you. I'm going to read the quote of what David does next to keep himself warm. And you need to tell me what he does. Okay. This is a family friendly show. This would make the insides of my legs mighty warm and good. I continued this till daylight in the morning. How often I did this activity, I don't know. But I reckon it was at least a hundred times. Matthew Jackson. What did David Crockett do? I'm guessing he put the blood of the bear on him. <laughs> Is that what he did? Dear God, no. <laughs> I don't know. Why are you giving me that look? You went for him swimming in a pool of blood? 
That's how we... <laughs> I mean, blood's warm. I was going to say maybe crawled inside. I don't know. Uh, he finds a tree about two feet in diameter without any limbs and climbs up for about 30 feet. Crockett then locks his arms around the trunk and starts climbing. Once he reaches the limbs about 30 feet up, he slides back down the tree. He climbed the tree over a hundred times and slid down to keep his body warm. Weird. That's weird. <laughs> Bathing in a bear's blood. That's, that's okay. But sliding and going wee like a fireman. That's the weird part to you. <laughs> well, you, you made it sound it was crazy. Okay, moving on. I'm horrified. One stormy winter night, the crockets are running low on food. David's brother-in-law is about six miles away and has extra black powder for the hunt. Elizabeth pleads for David not to go. Crockett believes there is no other option and leave. He crosses the river, keeping his rifle and his gun dry over the water as he crosses the water, which is coming up to his neck. David reaches his brother-in-law's house, grabs the powder, and attempts to give back when his brother-in-law tells David it's just too dangerous to leave, isn't it? Which is the same argument. David had just heard from his wife before he left. But David agrees with his brother-in-law and instead goes out hunting. <laughs> he kills two deer for his brother-in-law and then heads back home. Can you see the pulsing vein from his wife's neck? Like, just in frustration, like... Uh, how, how fast her head snapped to him? Like, what? <laughs> now you're listening? Now we're listening. Now. David decides to start selling wood to New Orleans. Barrel making is a huge industry, and Tennessee has a lot of wood that can be shipped down the Mississippi for a good price. David, maybe not remembering of his friends nearly being drifted off by a canoe or himself trying to cross a choppy water in a canoe, decides he can travel down the, most, the Mississippi. The boat, however, proved to be too heavy, and his crew that he had assembled were unable to control the boat in the current. They tried to navigate it back to land, but they failed, so they decided that the river would just navigate them just fine, as if they had the choice in the matter. David heads to the cabin to think about, quote, how much better, how much better bear hunting was on land than floating along the water. He is already regretting this decision. The boat crashes into a nearby sawyer near Memphis. As the boat takes on water, David, quote, I began to think that I was in a worse box than ever, but I put my arms through and hollered as long as I could roar, as the boat and I hadn't quite been filled up with water to my head and the hands were next to the raft seeing my arms out hearing me holler sees them and begins to pull a man pulled crockett out as fast as he could ripping off some of crockett's clothes but also a fair amount of his skin i was however well pleased to get out in any way even without shirt or hide You'll be surprised to learn that this was the last trip David would attempt to make down the Mississippi. But he runs into a fair bit of luck. He runs into a man named 
Marcus Brutus Winchester. He is the son of the founder of Memphis, Tennessee, and is a War of 1812 veteran who is now able to who is now about to become the new mayor of Memphis. The men hit it off so well that Winchester agrees to start backing Crockett in a congressional run. Crockett is now a more seasonal orator and now has financial backing from Winchester. Helping Crockett is also helping Crockett's case is that the price of cotton plummeted over the last two years, which hurts the economy. And what happens in a bad economy? Congressmen lose their seats. Two years after losing to Alexander, Crockett, after losing to Alexander by 267 votes, Crockett this time wins by over 2,000 votes. He gets over half of the votes in a three-way race, and David is so excited about the win, he almost kills his horse, riding it back, screaming, the victory is ours. (laughs) Almost rode it to death, huh? That poor horse. (laughs) Jeez, what a swing, though. 267 votes you lose by, and then 2,000 you gain. Which probably tells you how much how important money is in politics that I don't want to talk about, but yeah, a bad economy will do that to you. I'll spoil this now, but Crockett is not the most effective politician. He doesn't pass one bill in the three terms that he will be elected to Congress. And his biggest achievement is one new postal route in Tennessee. We can also probably mention that despite, mm, certain films Crockett did not wear frontier clothing in Congress that the rumor would, uh, that the rumor was at the time. In fact, he was described as always pleasant, courteous, an interesting man who without uneducated in books was a man of instinct and intellect. He also wore the clothes that he was expected to wear. Crockett lacked the skill to compromise kind of an issue for a politician, but he was your classic straight shooter. He talked about, he talked to fellow congressmen as, quote, many men seem to be proud that they can say so much about nothing. Their tongues keep working, whether they've had any grist to the grind or not. Then there was some in Congress who do not, who do nothing to earn their wages, but listen all day. But considering the speeches, I think they earn every penny amounting to $8 a day, providing that they don't go to sleep. It's harder than splitting gum logs in August through to stay awake. I.e., everyone believes they're the best in the room and will talk about nothing other than to hear the sound of their own voices. Still true to this day. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Everyone's interesting. Crockett has bigger issues rather than trying to stay asleep. He's already made enemies with Andrew Jackson. The worst political thing you can do in this era. Crockett's had issues with Jackson's going back to the militia days, uh, but seemed to irk David was that Crockett was an actual common man and was frustrated by Jackson, a wealthy plantation owner, who, as far as the public were concerned, was also a common man. Because Crockett opposed Jackson, Jackson's newspaper accused Crockett of adultery, being a drunk and a gambler, something Crockett would use humor to combat. Quote, they accused me of adultery. It is a lie. I never ran away with a man's wife that wasn't willing. 
they accuse me of gambling. It is a lie, for I always plant the cash. And they accuse me of being a drunkard. And it is a lie, for whiskey cannot make me drunk. To where his wife, in the background, with the pulsing neck vein, went, what was that first line, please? They accuse you of adultery? Hmm? What's your response? Hmm. All right. Despite his newspapers, Crockett is elected to a second term in Congress. Crockett is one of, if not the only person in Tennessee, Jackson's home state, who could openly defy the general and still get reelected. He is very popular amongst his, um, with his constituents. Gold is found in Georgia on Cherokee land, and the U.S. Send, has miners that want to enter the territory. So Congress signs the Indian Removal Act. It is endorsed by Jackson that would remove the Cherokee from their land and allow this to happen. The Cherokee actually used the U.S. court system in the case that goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Not only do they use the court, but they win the court battle saying that the Cherokee do not need to leave their land. However, Jackson ignores the court's decision and by doing so, uh, challenges the Supreme Court's authority. The Cherokee are still forced to move to Oklahoma in what becomes known as the Trail of Tears. Things are discussed here. Yeah, Jackson's a horrible person. I was, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I remember when you first brought up Jackson. I was gonna say, wasn't he a terrible human? He was a terrible human. He also, what I can't like, there, he definitely has followers. Easily the worst, well, not the worst thing Jackson did. But this is the worst thing Jackson does as president, and nobody talks about not only how bad it was for the Native Americans, that's obviously the worst part, but he openly defied the Supreme Court, one of the three equal branches of government. I don't know. That's always irked me that that never gets brought up. But anyway, Crockett voted against the Indian Removal Act. Quote, several of my colleagues got around me and told me how they love me, and that I was ruining myself, and that they said this was a favorite measure of the president and I ought to go for it. I told them that I believe it was a wicked, unjust measure, and that I should go against it. Let it lead cost to myself for what it might, but I am unwilling to go with General Jackson and everything I believed was honest and right. But further from this, I wouldn't go for him, nor would any other man in the whole creation. I would sooner be honestly and politically dead than hypothetically immortalized. I voted against the Indian bill in my conscience tells me that I am a good, that it was a good and honest vote and one that I believe will not make me ashamed in my day of judgment. Understanding that his constituents would be, would likely be upset by going against the vote. Crockett sends out a letter to be published in newspaper, but he does take a huge hit on his popularity. Crockett is up for re-election, and Jackson is motivated more than ever to make sure that he doesn't keep his seat. Jackson runs a man named Fitzgerald and is a nasty campaign where Crockett is no longer using humor to defend himself. He publicly threatens Fitzgerald with, quote, a country trashing if Fitzgerald continued to keep lying about Crockett. Fitzgerald gives a speech directly after Crockett. Crockett's in attendance. 
Fitzgerald puts a piece of cloth on the table and then begins a speech. Sometime during, Crockett gets up to give that country thrashing. When he gets really close to Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald reaches for the cloth, and then suddenly Crockett is now staring down the business end of a pistol. Crockett stands down, which would have been a huge blow to his reputation for being a man's man. Crockett loses the election and is sent home. Which, to be fair, that reaction of being faced with a pistol, you'd do the same. Right, we're going to stand down. Uh, never mind. David is out of politics again and is in more in debt than he was before he went to Washington for living expenses and for expecting to be to live up to social responsibilities. Making it worse for David is that he finds out that his very angry wife has had it up to here with his constant being away and she leaves him. The two never reconcile again. Yeah, I saw that coming a mile away. I think a lot of... <laughs> I think everyone but Davey, pro- David probably saw it. Up north in New York, a small play opens up called The Lion of the West. Its main character is dressed in buckskin clothes, deerskin shoes, and a comically large wild skin cat skin hat. The character talks in short witticisms and describes himself as, quote, half horse, half alligator, and a touch of the earthquake. He has the prettiest sister, the fastest horse, the ugliest dog in the district, and can outjump, throw, drag out any man in all of Kentuck. The lead character's name? Drum roll, please. (laughs) Nimrod Wildfire. Nimrod! Got a ranking on Nimrod? Okay. I didn't know if it was like a, a person, like the actor. Um, Nimrod, I love that name. I'm going to say eight. Eight for Nimrod Wildfire. Yeah, you're Nimrod. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of like, yeah, you're a Nimrod, but then Wildfire. Just a splash of the sexy there with the Wildfire. <laughs> right? people start making some obvious connection that Nimrod may in fact be based on David, despite the creator telling David himself that he was not based on him. I mean, he is kind of a Nimrod. Well, Crockett attends the play and sometime during the performance is pulled up on stage as the crowd roars that both Nimrod and David bow to each other. And then the crowd (laughs) lion of the West is so popular. It is the most presented play until Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is a big deal, this play. Capitalizing on this, a book comes out titled The Adventures of Colonel David Crockett of Tennessee. The book is more based on Nimrod than it is on David, but it is hugely popular. David sees no royalties for the play, nor book, uh, and is in money troubles. Here is where he writes his autobiography and pieces it together with inspirations based on Ben Franklin's autobiography, that according to Michael Wallace, his biographer. Crockett says that it will be the true story of his life and will be a simple and only 200 pages. During the writing, and this is the most relatable thing I have ever read, during the writing, he asked the publisher to make the margins a little tighter 
and the print a little bigger so that he could barely hit the 200 pages that he had promised. <laughs> if that isn't something everyone goes, oh, I feel you. <laughs> or, well, yeah, you couldn't back then, but now you can just make the good old periods just a, a one, one font size bigger. The professors will know. Don't tell them. <laughs> you got to print it out. You handed him printed. <laughs> I don't think they hand anything in print anymore. <laughs> you old man. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I did that tons of times. Oh, you just heard from a friend. <laughs> right. I just heard about it. I just heard about it. Dr. Volan is so disappointed in you right now. David has a fever, and the only prescription is more Congress. He runs again and winds up getting his, con- his congressional seat back. Just barely. It's one last jab into the side of Andrew Jackson. His term goes about as well as the last. Crockett doesn't get much done, but is really there to oppose Jackson more than ever. He spends two years flirting with a presidential run with the Whigs as they are desperate uh, to get Jackson and the Democrats out of power. The Whigs, however, don't seem to take David as a serious candidate, which hurts him personally. Around this time, we meet Sam Houston. Uh, David meets Sam Houston, who he may have known from his militia days, but becomes more familiar with him. Houston encourages Crockett to come down as he believes Texas will be an independent country within the next couple of years. During the election of 1836, public, Crockett publicly claims that if Van Buren wins the presidency, that Crockett would leave the country. Then... Van Buren won the presidency. Crockett, true to his word, leaves saying the phrase he will probably repeat dozens of times bitterly from Tennessee to Texas. Quote, since you have decided to elect a man with a timber toe, you can go to hell. I will go to Texas. Crockett has a few goals heading to Texas. Personally, if the trip went well, Maybe Elizabeth would take him back. Huh? Hmm? Huh? I know a strange wife. What will make you come back to me is me leaving. Again. Again. (laughs) Solid watertight logic there, David. I'm only leaving permanently one more time. (laughs) It's a bold strategy. It's a bold strategy. I have to see how it works out for him. If Houston was indeed correct, Texas would also be an independent state soon, and they would need leadership. Crockett likely would be on the short list of leaders, whether presidential, a senator, cabinet, what have you. There is opportunity in them, their states. We're going to go into a lot more detail over the next two episodes. So I'm just going to do a very brief description because David isn't as involved with the Texas Revolution or the Alamo. Uh, leading up to it, so we'll leave that to another. Uh, Around 1820, the Mexican government wants to populate Texas so that the Americans simply can't walk in to take it. So they make a brilliant plan to allow Americans to come in and populate the area, thinking that the now New Mexicans, emigrants, would then defend against the United States should the United States be get a little land grabby. 
The Mexico's constitution bans slavery, but looks the other way as slaveholders come into the country. But once Mexico wants to enforce anti-slavery laws, the slaveholders start a rebellion and eventually the Texas Revolution. Now, also, taxation is a thing. It's a whole, we'll get into it, but it's not just slavery, but it is a really big part of it. Crockett swears his allegiance to Texas himself, and we actually have his pledge. Quote, I do solemnly swear that I will bear the true allegiance of the provisional Texas government of Texas, come in the future Republican government thereafter may be declared, and that I will serve her honestly and faithfully against her enemies' opposers whatsoever, and observe that they may be the orders of the governor of Texas. The orders and decrees of the present and future authorities of the orders of the officers appointed near me, according to the rules and regulation of the government of Texas. So help me God. David stops at multiple places in Texas, giving speeches more political rally than anything else. Quote, fellow citizens, I am among you. I have come to your country. I have come to you, come to aid you in your noble cause. I shall identify myself with your interests and with all the honors that I desire of the defending as a high private in my common cause for my fellow citizens with liberties and common country. David makes his way to San Antonio to a little missionary known as the Alamo, a place he may not have even known the name of. Crockett, along with 300 other Texians, barricade themselves and eventually a 13-day siege taking the Alamo begin. Sam Houston, thinking the, the Alamo has zero military advantage, effectively abandoned the man and effectively abandoned the Texians against an army of 1,800. On day 13 of the siege, the Mexican army overwhelmed and invaded the fort and killed everyone inside. Accepting no quarters, only a slave woman and her infant child are confirmed survivors. It's not really known how David dies. The famous depiction of him, of him is him swinging his rifle over his head, fighting off the Mexican army valiantly, uh, is an image that I think a lot comes to a lot of people's heads. There is one more, more credible source that comes from a Mexican soldier's journal and describes David as one of the seven men that actually surrender at the end of the battle, but Santa Ana offers no quarters and all seven of those men are executed. The Alamo becomes a rallying cry for, for their so far unsuccessful Texas Army. Sam Houston is able to use the loss as a rallying cry, and with some luck and opportunity, eventually win the Texas Revolution. And that is David Crockett. Kind of went out just quietly. Yeah, we're going to go into a lot more detail, but David... between the other two names we're going to cover between James Bowie and William Barrett Travis. He's just the least involved. He just kind of shows up at the end and comes into the Alamo. So this is kind of our segue into it. Uh, This is about as a political fighting as we're going to get in our podcast. Um, In fact, he was in Washington so long, I almost debated he didn't qualify, but he had so many good quotes and I had fun writing it. So we're going to talk about him. Um, so yeah, there's, this is episode one of three as we march to the Alamo. So I think now we need to rate him. Rank, 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 rank. 
All right, we're going to rank him. Our first round is Are You Satisfied? This is our biography round. We will be handing out a score between negative 10 and positive 10, depending on how well we like the story. Matt? Um, You know, I kind of liked it. I thought, I, I, I agree with what you were saying. Um, he's probably the uh, more relatable than some of these other guys we've covered so far. Right. Overall, it was pretty entertaining. Um he just wouldn't give up his political career, would he? God, he wouldn't give God. up much other than he didn't. He loved his wife, I'm sure. He was away quite a bit. I wonder if that was a thing back then. Like, I mean, yes. I mean, there married, was. Like, they went on quite a few. Like, you know, who was it? Uh, it was Boone, right? That would spend months. Right. Well, Boone also just didn't like people. Right. And he was way more into nature and hunting. Like right. It seemed like his wife just, I mean, he, his wife was the only one he liked. Uh, but it sounded like he was more, if he didn't hunt, he didn't, I don't want to say he didn't have another skill, but if he didn't hunt, there was nothing to put on his table. Crockett had a political career. He tried, you know, his uh, gunpowder shop, weapon manufacturing, like he, whiskey distillery. Right. He tried multiple things. He just wasn't very good at any of them. And truth be told, he's not even that good of a politician. He's just, he's the funny kid in the back of class. Yeah, but he had no lasting impact, huh? Like, he didn't I really. Mean, he does. Well, he just didn't do, like, pass anything or. Uh, he must have had some charm, though, if he, like, was able to keep getting voted in. I mean, you just read, you, you heard a lot of his charm because this is easily the most quote heavy I've ever gone on an episode. Uh, his autobiography, it is on, again, I'm not trying to plug them too much, but it is on Livervox. Uh, you can listen for free. It's only about four hours, or you can get a copy of his book of his autobiography. It is only 200 pages. It is really entertaining. Like I, I do legitimately enjoy just reading that one. Cause it's funny. Is it 200 pages? Is it? I mean, depending you know, on your font, what's that style, font size? <laughs> just pinch those margins just a little bit better. I love that. Absolutely loved it. If Davy Crockett can fudge the margins, by God, so can I. Right? They were doing it back then. It's good to see we're still doing it today. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was charmed by him. I don't know what that relates to your score. So I'm. What? How? What is your score? What did you? How did he do? Uh, as far as biography, um, I thought uh, he kind of was like, um, I feel like Boone towards the end where he just lived more of a normal life. Um, I think that's interesting that he was like, I'm, I'm out of here, and he was actually, and he actually did leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and uh, I'm gonna give him a, about a six and a half. 6.5. Yeah, I think that's fair. There's not much debate on that. I don't think he did anything. He didn't do anything stupendous. He He's memorable. He did a lot of things. But he just wasn't good at a lot of things. Right. Like He tried a lot of things, and he tried to be successful. It just never worked out for him. Right. He does have that heroic, like, it's a fairly, I'm going to assume you've seen the picture of it. It's just him standing basically on some rubble, swinging his his rifle around. Uh, yeah, I, I think he, he was that legit man's man. He was just a funny Daniel Boone. 
I'm just more impressed with with him. So I'm going to what did I give Daniel Boone? I gave Daniel a three. You gave him a six. I think I'm going to go with a five for David. Yeah, that makes sense for me because I, I really related them both. Um, They're very similar. Of, yeah, very similar. As far as their life, I mean, as far as their like career path and everything went. Mm-hmm. I'll agree with that. All right, second round. Be sure you are right, then go ahead. This is our morality round. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted on this one because I feel like he did a couple shady things. Like, you know? um, when, I mean, I get it. The, the gal shot, uh, one of their buddies with an arrow, but what did he say? They, um, shot her. Like 20 sometimes? Yeah, they, so in the uh, Tallahatchie, uh, essentially, it's a massacre, but it's not a battle. Right, and then they burned their house down. Like, I don't even know if they had, like, a chance. No, it was a dawn attack. It was a surprise attack. Yeah, that's a fair point. He he was a soldier. That was not his orders, but yes. I was going to say, and I'm not sure he wasn't the one, like, leading it that said, hey, let's do this, but. I do want to say, so his autobiography, most of the autobiographies we're going to, of the people that write them that we cover are absolute hot garbage. We just covered calamity. His just seems like a touch of just honest to me because he, he didn't need to put that in his book in the way he described it. So to me, as I was reading it, it seemed like there was some remorse there, especially when he goes into that graphic of detail. I, I, it doesn't excuse for what he did. Don't, don't get me wrong on there, but there, I can forgive him at slightly because he seemed to regret it later in life. And he did oppose the Indian removal act. Yeah. But he was kind of also sketchy where he was against slavery quote unquote but own slaves yep that is yep that's 100 percent uh he then just to think of a few other good things that he did uh he paid off his father's debt yeah uh, when he didn't yeah. need to and plus gave him a gift uh more yep got him out of debt and gave him a, a gift yep uh just on that i mean how much credit how I mean how much do you want to dock him for just leaving his family when he's younger for two years because his father was angry at him and then oh it doesn't sound like he's a very good husband i'm gonna assume nah, he's not a very good uh, father, father on that too. because of that yeah i mean he married a he married her because he was a what a widower of with three kids uh she had she didn't have any he had three kids right so yeah i mean he married her like, that might be an of the time thing because you did need a family if you're going to run an anchorage. Like you did need people to work the lands like that. That was a marriage of convenience, probably for both of them. And then what frustrated Rebecca more was he just wasn't there. <laughs> he was just off. I think overall, though, I think I'm going to give him a. What did I give Daniel Boone? You gave Daniel Boone a five. Yeah, I think I'm going to give him a six. I'll agree with that. 
Yeah, six seems fair. I don't think there's anything to really really debate on that. That is 12. He also got, I got to get better, actually announced his scores at the end of rounds. He had an 11 and a half out of, are you satisfied? And now he has a 12 after, uh, be sure you are right. Next round, to hell with the consequences. Was he crazy or clever? Again, we're going to hand out scores between negative 10 and positive 10 on if we think he was crazy or if he was fairly clever. He was witty. Yeah, I mean, but does that make you clever? I mean, that is funny what he did with uh, in the with the, the ruffles. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny. And, and, and I mean, that got probably people on his side, honestly. He is like, he. you can hook him up to like that vein of the common man. Only he legitimately was the common man. Like Jackson isn't. The presidents that run of being common people, of the common man, they aren't. He legitimately was. He was authentic to himself. Uh, his autobiography, I think, is a way for him, based off of the play that made him more famous, and then the book that was based more off the play than him, his book, I think, he did have presidential aspirations, and I think in his head, this is how he's going to get there. Uh, that is clever, because I think that would be the first time that's happened, because I can't think of another president because Jackson's the seventh. I can't think of someone who wrote an autobiography with that aspiration. It almost seems intended, like that's what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I he is zero when it comes to crazy. Like, I, he was not crazy at all. Um, I think I'm going to go in. I am going to go low, though. Uh, I think I'm going to do like a three. Three. I think I'm going to go four, just because I think he's funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't have a... I guess he's clever in that aspect, but I, I guess uh, when I say think of clever, I think of more of like what he did to like get himself ahead. Right. No, oh, I think that's fair. That is a score of seven. Now, David's score is locked. Right now, he has a total of 30.5 points. He will continue to stay positive from here on out. Matt and I will be going only giving answers from our numbers from zero to 10 and our first answer or first next round is draw. If we were to face David Crockett in a duel, how screwed are we? Um, I'm going to, I'm not going to give any point. I think I'm going to do zero on that. I, I just don't, the whole story. I don't remember once you saying that he got into an argument with anyone or he did like no one like pissed him off. So I just don't think, He's I mean, the Mexican person. army. And then he, had, he did have a showdown with uh, Fitzgerald, with, who pointed the gun in his face, but he did back down. Back down, right? As he should. Right. So I just don't think we would be in – I just don't see us getting in a situation where we would have to draw on him. No. He was not a gunslinger. No, he wasn't. He was a good shot. I didn't mention that his rifle's name is Betsy. People might be upset I didn't cover that. Yeah, I'm really not that scared. You're going with a zero? Yeah. For comparison, you gave uh, Tenskwatawa also a zero. Are you not a little bit more intimidated by David Crockett than Tenskwatawa? Nope. Sure I'm not. Okay. Well, you stick with your zero. I'm going to give him a one uh, because I think he's more intimidating than Tenskwatawa, <laughs> who got 
negative one, so I guess I could go zero. But I think he deserves something. The Mexican army, I don't know. He didn't. He doesn't seem to have fear. I will say that. Whatever, right. like he's crossing the river when he shouldn't in a thunderstorm. He's crossing another river with his gun above his head because when his wife told him not to, uh, he he's brave. I, we just don't really have a good category for are you brave? So uh, next category, legacy. How well known is he? Zero, score of zero to 10. I'm going to say probably a... What did I give? Um, uh, <laughs> well, I just, Daniel I just don't want to go lower. I, no, I'm not doing Daniel Boone. I'm doing... Um, Give him a four. Tecumseh. Tecumseh. You gave him a four. I think I, okay. Okay. So I'm going to give him a six. I think he's pretty well known, at least in name alone. I agree. I think that name is fairly well deserved. I mean, I, 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 I'll be honest with you. I didn't watch the miniseries. It didn't interest me that much. I'll probably go back in and watch it just for, I think it's on YouTube somewhere, but he seems more deserving of that miniseries than Daniel Boone does of the TV series. I'm sorry, people that like the Daniel Boone TV series. I did like Daniel Boone. I just like Davey. I think Crockett lives up to his name more than, than Daniel Boone did. Um, six isn't a bad score. I think I might just match that. He's one of the bigger names, but I don't think he's the name. I think if you're talking about the Texas Revolution, he is the yeah, famous that, name, yeah. unless you're talking about Sam Houston, and I'm going to guess only because Houston is a well-known city. Same thing with Austin, Texas. Like I, I think six is fair. Death bonus. Does he have a cool death story? We can hand out basically bonus points between zero and two if we think he had a cool death story. Bang in the Alamo. I'm going to say one. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I don't... He went out I'm fighting. I guarantee he went out fighting. Well, he either went out fighting or he survived. He was one of the last surviving seven. And then and they executed. just executed. Which some people believe... Like it's all, Some people almost take that as blasphemy, that he didn't die in the Alamo, and how dare you say he didn't die during the Alamo. Who cares? Like, to me, it was more impressive for him to survive, almost get out of it, and then be executed. Like, it's not cowardice. I don't know if some people seem to think it's cowardice. Counting coup. He was a soldier. Right. So I think we have our token point. Yep, I agree. I don't think he did. Oh, well, he did. Well, yeah, we can't really count that whole... Um, when they burned down and killed, I think it was like 42 or something like that. Yeah, but that was the whole regiment. That was the whole, whole, right. It was a massacre is what it was. And then I bet he took out a few few of the Mexican army. I just, you can't quantify it. So if we want to give him the token point, we can give him the token 10 points, which would be one point in this category. Yeah, let's do that. That gives him one point in counting coup. That brings his total score to 46.5. Respectable. Not the best score. It's not the worst score. 
because we seem to can't, because we always want to compare him to Daniel Boone, Daniel Boone got 39.3. And I think 46 for David Crockett's about right. I think I agree with that. A little bit better. All right. Now, I can find my coin because it's right here. Oop, that's not the one I want. All right. So now we're going to draft him. Matt, what are we doing with drafting? You and I both have a team. I believe I have two on there right now. Three. I have three. You have four, correct? We're tied. Three, three. Oh, three, three. Okay. And then um, at the end, we'll both have a team and we'll uh, face off against each other. If we neither of us want to draft uh, said figure into our team, they will go into the free agent pool. Correct. And then at the end, we're going to hold a tournament with those who are on our teams, and we're going to match them head to head, uh, and we're going to see who actually won the West. So, heads. Oh, God. I didn't look. I didn't look. You're calling heads? Mm hmm. What is it? Tails. Yeah, I'll draft him. Yeah, he's a pretty good. He's a pretty good figure to have you on your team. He's, good. he's solid. He is a solid, solid story. Not great. He's pleasant. And let me tell you, the next story, the next person, Dave, uh, James Bowie, he ain't pleasant at all. So <laughs> I'm going to need some positivity after this. So uh, with that said, that is all that is all we have on Davy Crockett. Uh, I do want to, just because it's been a little bit of a while before since I've plugged uh, – of the other podcast, if for whatever reason you are new to this ranking uh, podcast format, we are all descendants from our podfathers, Rex Factor. Uh, they do all of the kings and queens of, uh, they're doing all the kings of England. They're now doing the consorts of England as well. And then just our other Totalis Rankium, who was our, who was my inspiration to do this. Also Pontifex does all the popes. Battle Royale is new. They're doing the French monarchs. Tudoriferous is doing all of the tutors. And if all of that sounds confusing, there's actually a group I also run because I really love this format called Totalis Groupium. Go ahead and give us a like. It's just basically people coming together with all of these ranking shows and just enjoying all of them. So um, I just wanted to shout all of them out. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and give us a like and subscribe and leave us a review. We would love that. We love hearing from you. Um, we do have an email, ranking76pod at gmail.com you can follow us on instagram at ranking 76 podcast and we do have a facebook group ranking 76 the american west go ahead and follow that group um again we appreciate you listening well with that uh i'm eric and i'm matt and we'll see you next time you hit play